The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Innovations and Imaging in Multiple Sclerosis, Examining the Evidence, Looking Toward the Future of Bruton Tyrosine Kinase Inhibitors. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DTJ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to our program. You, you are definitely the brave, uh, committed members of the 2022 CMSE meeting. You're here before 7 in the morning uh, to look at an exciting topic, examining the evidence, looking toward the future of Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. If there's ever a topic that will get you up at 7 in the morning, it's got to be Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Today we're going to be going through a jam-packed session. Um, I'm joined by my colleague Tony Trabulsi, who we'll introduce appropriately shortly, and we're going to get started with the first topic today. So my name is Benjamin Greenberg. I'm a professor of neurology at the University of Texas Southwestern in, in Dallas, and I'm going to be giving you a background on BTK. We're going to start with um, a video about the biology of MS. Although T-cells have traditionally been thought of as the main contributor to MS disease pathogenesis, evidence now shows that B-cells are also directly involved in several primary mechanisms, including antigen presentation, T-cell activation, and cytokine production. B-cells move into the CNS where reactivation leads to neuroinflammation. Cytokines produced in the periphery by both B and T cells attract more lymphocytes and act on the blood-brain barrier, increasing adherence of these cells and increasing permeability of the blood-brain barrier, allowing invasion of immune cells into the CNS. Once in the CNS, reactivation occurs, resulting in the secretion of pro-inflammatory cytokines and the B cell production of antibodies. Attracted by the cytokines, microglia, macrophages, dendritic cells, and activated T cells recognize the myelin antigen as foreign and attack the myelin sheath and oligodendrocytes. Antibodies produced by the B cells attack myelin through complement deposition, causing axonal injury. Damage to the cells exposes new antigens and attracts more T cells, triggering more neuroinflammation. B cells act as antigen-presenting cells promoting T-cell activation and producing cytokines and antibodies in the CNS that lead to compartmentalized inflammation thought to contribute to MS pathology. B-cells also appear to play a role in the development of progressive MS by way of the formation of lymphoid follicle structures in the meninges that promote ongoing T-cell activation within the brain. B-cells tend to be the predominant cell type within these structures. It is theorized that the resulting chronic meningeal inflammation promotes sub-peel injury and is associated with slowly evolving lesions and progressive disease. There's something very important missing from that animation, which is at the very end or at the very beginning, we should say, we think, or based on best current understanding. Um, I, I've gotten to a stage of having been to enough CMSC meetings to see the evolution of these videos and the explanation of multiple sclerosis. If, if we had been at this meeting actually not that long ago in, in, in my professional career, um, we wouldn't have talked about B-cells. Uh, this was a T-cell-mediated disease. And if you go back long enough, the suggestion that B-cells were integral to the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis was a very controversial uh, topic, and, and some people would call heretics for even suggesting that B-cells play a role in the pathogenesis of the disease. And that video presents 
our current understanding, and if you wait just a few years, I guarantee it's going to change. But if you look at the history of how things have evolved over time, there have been some foundational shifts. If you just ask the questions of, should, you, should we really consider multiple sclerosis a B-cell-mediated disease, which is a controversial question and, and statement, and it's a broad statement, there's a series of lines of evidence to say B-cells play an integral role in the pathogenesis of disease, and they're listed here, and you can read them. They include the findings in spinal fluid, what we see pathologically in the meninges. We know the biology of B-cells are uh, such that you can lead to uh, autoimmune events and damage to the central nervous system. And frankly, if you look at our therapeutics and look for highly effective therapies, B-cell depleting therapies are highly effective. And if you look at the spectrum of therapies for MS, most of them, if not all of them, have some impact on the B-cell compartment. So there's a lot of evidence to say B-cells play a significant role in the pathogenesis of the disease. What we're going to talk about today is taking this understanding of the disease, which is the current understanding of the disease, and looking through the lens of new therapeutic options that could leverage this biology to the benefit or alter this biology to the benefit of our patients with multiple sclerosis, specifically Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Now, in order to talk about BTK inhibitors, I always start with this slide or, or something like it, the introduction of protein kinases. And I'm, I'm doing this purposefully to start getting us in the world of multiple sclerosis to have a different vocabulary when it comes to biologics and therapeutics. We have not had any kinase-altering um, drugs in our lexicon for multiple sclerosis. So kinases are enzymes, and they phosphorylate proteins that lead to a cascade, a signaling event in the, in the uh, cellular space, intracellular space. And what's important here is when you're targeting an enzyme, the therapeutics that target enzymes have very specific pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties that are very different uh, than uh, the overwhelming number of drugs that we use uh, in multiple sclerosis. So if we look at the specific kinase, Bruton's tyrosine kinase, we're going to look at it in a couple different ways. First, relative to B-cell biology. So this was discovered uh, uh, more than 70 years ago in the setting of X-linked A-gamma globulinemia by Ogden Bruton, a pediatrician um, actually working at Walter Reed. And what was found was patients who had a mutation of this kinase had very low B cell counts and had no antibody production. And over many years, the biology of Bruton's tyrosine kinase relative to B cell development was slowly understood. In the pro B cells, Bruton's tyrosine kinase really doesn't play a role. So you can find pro B cells in the bone marrow of patients with X-linked agamoglobulinemia, but they don't develop pre B cells, immature B cells, mature B cells, or plasma cells, and they don't go through the maturation. And so the Bruton-Sarsing kinase as a protein is critical to the development of a functional B cell relative to the immune system. But this is not the only cell where uh, Bruton-Sarsing kinase plays a role. Um, as mentioned in the video that you heard in the beginning, B cells aren't the only cell involved in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. A different cellular compartment that's gaining a lot of attention and focus over the last 20 years uh, has been microglia. Now, microglia, their biology, uh, part of it is based on the role of Bruton's tyrosine kinase. You can activate BTK via a toll-like receptor on the surface of a microglial cell or through FCR-mediated antibody phagocytosis. So two different sensors that the microglia have in the world about what's happening around it immunologically. If they get activated, Bruton's tyrosine kinase is critical 
to the nucleus of the cell, understanding what's happening in the rest of the world. It communicates. It sends the signal down the line to the nucleus to say, we are being activated immunologically in the environment. And so if microglia play a big role in multiple sclerosis, you would expect altering the activation of microglia may be beneficial to our patients with multiple sclerosis. So if you put up side by side Bruton's tyrosine kinase and ask what could be the possible benefit of inhibition in multiple sclerosis, the two cellular compartments that rise to the top of the list would be B cells and microglia. And what are the potential benefits? So if you inhibit Bruton's tyrosine kinase in a B cell, you'll get less B cell activation, maturation. You won't get the same level of autoantibody production. Importantly, you won't get the amount of cytokine production, presumably in the setting of antigen presentation to T cells. And in terms of the microglia, you lead to less activation. Now, 20 years ago at this meeting, uh, multiple sclerosis was a T-cell-mediated disease and very little discussions about B-cells. Then we started talking more and more about B-cells, and we, I think, as a field, have become very comfortable with the biology of B-cells relative to multiple sclerosis, and we take it for granted that in the history of MS, this is a relatively new conversation. Um, as I talk to colleagues and trainees, uh, I realize we do not have as deep an understanding of microglia. So that's the next horizon of us cognitively and scientifically wrapping our heads around a paradigm of multiple sclerosis therapy. And so I just want to give you a couple slides about microglial activation and biology and put it in the context of Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibition. So microglia are very complicated cells. We do not have time to go through the wealth of data to say that this is a dramatic oversimplification of, of microglia. It, just to give you a, a sense, if you do gene expression studies of microglia and you sample microglia from different regions of the brain in the same person, there is massive heterogeneity in the cellular populations. They look completely different. But we lump them as microglia. And even though there's a spectrum, we like to have a binary classification because it makes our lives simple immunologically between pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory microglia based on what proteins and what cytokines they're expressing. So how does Bruton's tyrosine kinase um, and Bruton's tyrosine kinase modulation impact this? So if you look at the M1 pro-inflammatory phenotype of microglia, that signaling from toll-like receptors and FCR-mediated antibody phagocytosis, those sensors on the surface of the microglia asking the world, should I be inflamed or not, use Bruton's tyrosine kinase to create that M1 phenotype. So if you inhibit that ability of the microglial cell to sense those markers in the environment, you get a predominant of an M2 phenotype. And as you can see here uh, on the right side of the screen are some of the things that you would expect from an M2 phenotype of microglia, including less inflammation, suppression of autoreactive T cells, potentially tissue remodeling, and uh, the ability to grow new tissue uh, and hopefully healthy tissue. So I'm going to end with this slide. Uh, this, this is, this is a um, throwback slide, uh, and it's fantastic. It's, it's, we've used this for now um, 20 years, and I, I think it has really helped us uh, think about multiple sclerosis in a very different light. And I want to layer on these discussions of B cells and microglia to this slide. So as everyone in the room I'm sure is familiar, in that green bar you have the clinical events, the classic relapsing remitting course, represented by events, going back to a new baseline, and then at some point, potentially a patient going to secondary progressive disease, losing the relapses, but yet having year-over-year -year worsening uh, of their disability. But below the surface, 
what's happening are both inflammatory events and neurodegeneration, axonal loss. It is very controversial. I'm sure we could split the room on why is there degeneration in multiple sclerosis. Is it happening because of the meningeal follicles and B-cell media disease? Is it happening because of microglial activation? Both. Is there a small dwarf living in our stomach, altering our bodily humors? Lots of theories that are out there relative to progressive disease. But I will point out that if you take the two leading theories, microglial activation and B-cell-mediated germinal center formations with meningeal follicles, there's an opportunity here with Bruton-Styrosine kinase inhibition to impact the full spectrum of disease in multiple sclerosis, both the relapsing-remitting pathophysiology with the adaptive immune system causing these events and one of the multiple explanations for progressive disease. Hence, there's a lot of interest in Bruton-Styrosine kinase inhibition, both from the clinician perspective, the patient perspective, and obviously the industry perspective to bring new therapies to market. I'm gonna turn things over to my colleague, Dr. Tony Trabulsi, to now tell us the much more complicated situation about the options in therapy. So Tony, when you're, when you're listening to, to Tony's talk, and I, I mentioned that this was complicated, this is why it's complicated. For each of the drugs Tony's gonna to talk about, there could not be more differences between them. How easily do they get into the CNS? How do they bind to the enzyme? Do they lead to reversible or non-reversible inhibition of the enzyme? And the selectivity for BTK versus any of the other kinases that they could bind to. So as Tony's going through these slides, I want you to think about these drugs, each very much as independent drugs and not as a spectrum. Uh, because they're going to have uh, very different uh, characteristics. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to Tony. Great. Thank, uh, thanks, Ben. And hi, everyone. Um, I'm Tony from Vancouver, and uh, I'm just waking up. I'm sure all of you are waking up. <laughs> a lovely flight in last night, and uh, um, it was crazy going through the customs and all that. But uh, it's great to be here and great to uh, be involved in the BTK world. Um, so... I got involved at the phase two level many years ago, and, and um, you probably had some of the same questions I had. Why another drug for MS? Why another pill, right? And well, first of all, I had to figure out what the heck is a BTK. I didn't have Ben's ear to pick to find out what BTKs were, so I had to do a little bit of reading and reading and rereading to finally understand what BTKs were, uh, BTK inhibitors. Made the mistake of asking oncologists. They, they work with all those first-generation drugs, which always have the nasty side effects. So I was a little nervous with that, too. So I learned about BTKs, and then I thought, oh, why do we need another pill? We have a lot of pills out there already. And so some of the answers that came to mind were, well, maybe this might be better tolerated. No flushing, no hair loss, no diarrhea. Maybe it might be safer, no lymphopenia. Maybe it might be more effective for progressive MS. So those are some of the questions and data I'm going to be looking at over the years from phase two to phase three. And then the final question I had is, how is it going to compare to a monoclonal antibody? I always think of those as the big guns, right? Like nothing really compares to monoclonal antibodies. Uh, so it would be really interesting to see because we will have some head-to-head -head studies against monoclonal antibodies in the phase three programs. So, um, you know, as Ben said, we've got a variety of different uh, BTK inhibitors, each with some unique properties, which I'm still learning about. Have to learn what covalent means, non-covalent, reversible versus non-reversible, and how important are all of these components. But this table here just gives you a list of the current clinical trials. It's not just one drug, not just one BTK inhibitor 
that's uh, racing to the finish line, there's several. So we have the two that have perhaps the most uh, data, at least having phase two data, which I'll present, would be the evobrutinib and tolibrutinib. Uh, and then there's um, some very brave ones out there as well, finibrutinib and uh, remibrutinib, which uh, are going right from phase one to phase three. Uh, and so that'll be really exciting to see, did they guess the dose right? Because that's what you use phase two for, is to find your, your most likely dose uh, of the drug. And then there's a couple other ones that are a bit further behind, which I won't touch on as much. So this is uh, some of the phase two data. Uh, I'll present two studies that have some phase two data that has me uh, very excited about the phase three data that's going to come the next year or two. So evobrutinib is a classic phase two design, uh, multiple doses compared to placebo, as well as uh, an active control that's unblinded uh, to uh, uh, dimethyl fumarate. Good sample size, about 50 patients per arm and uh, six months of placebo. So very classic uh, phase two design using MRI as a primary outcome. And that's usually the most efficient way to find an effective anti-inflammatory dose. And then after six months, there's another six months. And, and in that uh, timeframe, the placebo patients are switched to low dose evobrutinib, which is going to be essentially equivalent to placebo. And so this is kind of a classic slide showing you the results. Now, Anybody who likes using dimethyl fumarate, don't be discouraged by the slide. It's that's sometimes MRI data is driven by one patient. So here you can see on the left is the uh, six-month results with placebo, the number of uh, new enhancing lesions over a certain time frame per patient. Uh, the 25 you can see is a milligram. The low dose is pretty equivalent to placebo, and that's pretty typical in these dose-finding studies that you find the lowest dose uh, possible. But then you can see at 75 once a day or 75 twice a day, which is the dose uh, that's in the phase three trial, very good suppression of the um, of MRI activity, which usually predicts good suppression of clinical activity as well in terms of relapses. The um, uh, dimethyl fumarate does work in MS. We use a lot of it. Uh, what happened here is one patient of those 50 patients had, I think, about um, 50 or 100 enhancing lesions uh, going into the study at baseline, which is crazy, and then had um, about another 50 or 100 enhancing lesions throughout the course of the study. It makes it sounds like a case of clippers, probably, but uh, every once in a while you get one of these strange cases that will really drive your your data, especially if you have a small sample size. So um, just don't don't beat up on dimethyl fumarate. Um, now, looking at uh, annualized relapse rate, uh, on the left, you'll see up to month six, and on the right, up to one year. Again, in general, you get low rates of, um, of relapses in phase two studies, but you can see um, uh, at the target dose of 75 twice a day, or even 75 once a day, you're getting very good uh, suppression of, or prevention of relapses down to the rate we kind of expect with current uh, therapies. Uh, so that's quite good. And again, you can see with dimethyl fumarate, you're getting very good uh, prevention of relapses despite that one case of high, high uh, MRI activity. So this data, uh, phase two data, which tends to be reproduced in phase three, but more, uh, you get a more precision in phase three, gives good confidence that both on MRI and relapse activity, so the inflammatory activity, uh, this, this drug and this dose should be very effective. Um, 
So again, this is where never talk to your hematologist. Their first generation of, of medications tends to be a bit more side effect, a uh, higher side effect profile. And this is, you know, a, a later generation of BTK inhibitors, which tends to have very nice um, uh, side effect profiles, uh, very uh, low rates of drug discontinuation, or serious events. I always look at infections because we are changing or affecting the immune system. And, and compared to placebo and, and ultra, ultra low dose, you're not seeing an infection. I think that's because we're modulating B-cell activity as opposed to destroying B-cell activity. And we're not really seeing lymphopenia as well, which is uh, very encouraging if you're going to sequence drugs in the future. Um, and fortunately, not seeing diarrhea. Um, because this is, uh, or flushing, and because this is uh, a pill and it's often metabolized through the liver, there's always going to be the occasional case of elevated liver enzymes, uh, but uh, lower than was, it, was experienced with the first generation and this uh, of BTK inhibitors, and this was very, um, very transient. You stop the drug, and the liver uh, enzymes return to normal quite quickly. So there's, of course, with phase two, you always like to see some extension data to mostly to um, get a sense of long, longer term safety. And uh, again, we're seeing consistent safety uh, without late safety signals showing up um, on this drug, especially not seeing infections beyond what one would expect in an MS population. And um, again, seeing some good uh, suppression. So there's tachyphylaxis where the drug is wearing off with time. And I've never really seen that in MS therapies. So over two and a half years, 80% uh, of patients are still in this open label extension uh, with 61% completing and uh, again, low rates of, um, of uh, serious events. So let's switch over to talabrutinib, the other uh, BTK inhibitor uh, with uh, phase uh, two data. And, and just for disclosure, I was involved in this clinical trial and had to learn something new again, had new clinical trial design, uh, which made me very nervous because we had our classic design for phase two, which was six months of placebo. Well, it's harder and harder to recruit patients into placebo-controlled trials with so many options out there. This was a one-month placebo study, one month. I thought, well, how's that going to work, right? And uh, it actually worked. Uh, I won't go into all the details, uh, uh, um, but um, so, so there was, uh, the group was divided into two. The first group, cohort one, would have, uh, or cohort two, rather, would have one month of placebo before starting one of the doses. And then cohort two would have go right into one of the doses and then uh, be on placebo for a month at the end of the study. And so using uh, some uh, uh, a valid and FDA-approved statistical modeling approach, you can uh, use that placebo data to model what dose is the most effective and what type of dose response curve you have. Uh, very attractive for patients because the maximum placebo exposure was one month. Uh, and then you have three months of, um, of uh, drug exposure data. And then eventually the patients went on to a, a long-term uh, extension study. And here's the uh, results. Primary income outcome, again, is going to be looking at uh, MRI disease activity with gadolinium uh, or T2 lesions, very similar in a phase two trial. Uh, placebo rate in orange, and then the target dose being used in phase three is 60 milligrams. Look at that beautiful suppression of uh, disease activity with MRI. Um, so very, and uh, some longer term extension data showing that that's sustained. 
we also kind of broke it down into patients that met uh, contemporary uh, uh, definitions of what's called highly active disease. They're the patients we tend to potentially worry more about their higher risk for relapses and disability. And about half the patients uh, in the group uh, met that definition going into the study. And that's just showing the breakdown by um, dose group. So fairly evenly distributed amongst the different doses. And of course, we're interested in uh, especially the high dose, 60 milligrams, uh, which is the target dose in the phase three trial compared to the placebo. And again, uh, on the left, you see patients who met that definition going into the study of highly active disease compared to patients, the whole cohort, which includes them as well. And you can see again, that nice suppression of MRI activity, uh, whether you were, whether the patient was highly active or regular active disease activity. And again, the tolerability was excellent. Uh, I think we only had one patient withdraw during the initial phase of the study uh, and wasn't because of tolerability. Um, I think it was to uh, uh, become pregnant at some point in the near future. Um, and so very rare to have drug discontinuation. Again, not seeing infections, not seeing diarrhea, uh, and rare cases of elevated liver enzymes that is uh, reversible. And so this, uh, of course, went into an extension study, just like the other study. Uh, and again, I find the extension study is good for de detecting any late infections or liver injuries. Uh, and, and again, nice persistent safety as well as efficacy, annualized relapse rate. Um, so at this point, everybody's on the 60 milligram dose, very low annualized uh, relapse rate uh, for the patients with 85% uh, relapse free and a stable EDSS. Uh, and uh, again, looking at the long-term extension, this was presented recently at American Academy of Neurology in lovely Seattle. I think it only rained one day. Um, and again, the, the counts, the activity counts were quite low, uh, both for uh, NuGAT activity and enlarging T2 lesions. We'll come back to the slowly expanding lesions, this new term. Again, something new to learn about uh, in, at the end of the, the presentation. Um, and and uh, pearls, pagnetic, uh, paramagnetic REM lesions as well, uh, was quite stable throughout the study. The reason for those, and we'll come back to it a, bit, a little bit later, is uh, these are hopefully biomarkers, uh, potential biomarkers for uh, mechanisms of progression. Again, with phase two, it's really hard to get... Um, uh, you know, really clear evidence of how you're you're impacting on on uh, progression, but you want you like to try to start picking up little pearls of information that might guide you to designing or understanding your phase three data as it comes through. So, with that in mind, what are the phase three trials? So, here's a list of uh, studies that are underway. Um, with uh, again, evobrutinib. Uh, so, a lot of them are using now teraflutamide as a comparator. Uh, some are uh, placebo-controlled, and those are more the uh, progressive studies uh, are placebo-controlled. So you have evobrutinib looking in the uh, relapsing uh, cohorts, whether relapsing, classic relapsing remitting or secondary progressive with relapses, and it's completed uh, its uh, recruitment, and so it's just collecting uh, data uh, at this point. Uh, Talabrutinib, there's a series of studies, of course, the classic relapsing remitting uh, studies, uh, which are uh, uh, near the end stages of recruiting. But there's also a uh, classic primary progressive study, the Hercules, uh, compared to placebo. And then there's also, um, sorry, that was a non-relapsing secondary progressive, and then Perseus, which is a primary progressive. So these are, uh, I think, you know, such an important target. Uh, and those tend to take a little bit longer, don't they, to get enough patients into those. Uh, Fenabrutinum, 
Again, you have a relapsing emitting study, classic design. But there's also head-to-head with ocrelizumab for primary progressive MS. And that's going to be really exciting to see how, in progressive MS, how a BTK inhibitor uh, ranks against uh, ocrelizumab, which is our kind of our standard treatment for primary progressive MS. And then uh, remibrutinib is a classic relapsing emitting study. So lots of activity, right? And it's a bit of a, a, a horse race um, to see who gets to the finish line first. Um, so let's see, I think we have a question. So based on the data today, do you think BTK inhibitors uh, have a good chance of being a first-line agent in MS treatment? First line for you know reasonable efficacy and reasonable safety. Um, well, we're waiting for your responses, Ben. I was going to say, if this is like Vegas and you have multiple iPads at your table, you can play multiple hands at once <laughs> and, and vote. Um, I, I don't want to bias the group. You, you, I think everyone's tendency is to say it depends, uh, you know, and you, you want to see the ultimate phase three data, but uh, I'll answer this based on the phase two data, assuming it holds up. I'd, I'd agree with 73% of the audience that um, we put in a first-line agent uh, for a couple reasons. One is if the efficacy and the safety hold up, why, why wouldn't you? Um, but the second is, you know, as a field, as we're moving to this discussion of highly efficacious therapy early on in, in the course of the disease, and we can have separate conversations of escalation versus induction and all those things, um, I, I think there's a real push for us to use whatever tools we have to put people into remission I will say, if I had to answer, it depends on this. My depend actually isn't so much the safety and efficacy. I think if one or more of the drugs that are doing both relapse remitting and progressive trials hit their endpoints for both relapse remitting and progressive, it makes it a very attractive approach in all patients. Because at least for me, I think my relapse remitting patients have some element of progression happening very early that I'm just ignorant to measuring. I was curious about the no group because I wonder where would I sit? I mean, what is my first line now? I'm mostly an anti-CD20 first line guy, person. Um, so do I need this drug to be as effective as anti-CD20 to use it as a first line? I guess I'll find out from phase three data. <laughs> um, or maybe it might, might be more an issue around long-term safety for me. Um, so far, we've got nice long-term data on anti-CD20, but there are some patients that start getting that immunoglob immunoglobulin depletion that could get into trouble. So, um, yeah, I, I, um, I was in the yes group, but now I'm wondering. So my bar is kind of at the, anti at the monoclonal antibody level for early disease. So it'll be really interesting to see if the phase three data meets that bar. Okay, well, that's the uh, advantage of being at the podium. I get the last word. <laughs> Uh, based on the data, uh, right, okay, well, this is a question for Tony. Uh, based on the data today, would you consider using a BTK inhibitor when a B-cell depleting drug has failed? Yes, no, I'm not sure. I just have to think of my own answer. Okay, everyone's poked the buttons. Ben, what do you, what do you think? So I think this is, a, this is a spectacular question. I love this question because it really gets to the fact that um, I think we're getting to a stage in MS therapies where it's going to be incumbent upon us to be closer to our oncology colleagues about understanding the nuances of how these drugs affect the targets. 
So the use of the term B cell depletion in multiple sclerosis, the only B cell depleting uh, agents we use or that are FDA approved are anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies. That only depletes a portion of B cells, not all B cells. Um, Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibition would have an impact on a broader population of B cells, changing their activation states without killing off B cells. I, I consider them completely different categories. And so if somebody were to fail one, I wouldn't assume that it would predict failure of another. We're, in my mind, we're really talking about apples and oranges, which is um, going to be very different for us, I think, as a field, because we're used to lumping drugs by classes, the interferons, the S1P drugs, the anti-CD20 drugs. And I, I don't think we can keep doing that, um, especially as we get into the BTK inhibitors. So uh, I would be in the, the yes group. I'm going to be really interested to see how it does with spinal cord, preventing spinal cord attacks. Because that's the rare time I see CD20 failures is usually in the spinal cord, um, just in my own experience. And, and so those are the ones I tend to switch over to something like anti-CD52. Um, but it'd be nice if um, this drug has a different mechanism there that might help with those preventing those spinal cord relapses. And uh, I guess the other area would be, of course, failure could be progression. If this drug truly does prevent progression, that's going to be really, uh, really exciting. Good. All right. Advantage of the podium. Here we go. So uh, just a couple of slides uh, for the detail-oriented people in the audience. These are just some of the, the, the um, designs of the studies, just for your information, uh, the phase three uh, clinical trials. So evobrutinib, this is the uh, relapsing emitting study, classic age, classic entry criteria. So it's, uh, it will be indirectly comparable to all the other stuff out there in terms of studies, uh, bearing in mind there's always differences in populations that enter in the primary is going to be a relapse rate and then of course uh, uh, patient report outcomes are very important in, in clinical trials uh, uh, regulatory agencies are re requiring more and more of that um, I'm going to be really interested of course in seeing uh, confirmed disability improvement in all of these studies I think that's kind of the new bar too isn't it not just preventing progression but seeing if patients can improve beyond what we expect from a placebo group this is atolabrutinum, which are the, uh, again, the relapsing remitting studies compared to teraflunamide. Very similar entry criteria and outcomes. This one includes changing cognitive function, something we often, uh, I don't do enough in clinical practice because I worry about my own, um, but I should do more. Um, then we have the uh, progressive studies uh, for secondary progressive. This, you know, it's, it's great this is being done because um, do we lump non-relapsing secondary progressive with primary progressive or do we get data and so this will give us data to know how similar those two similar diseases are and then uh, this is the uh, placebo controlled uh, tolibrutinib for primary progressive classic design for that looking at disability progression as well as disability improvement F uh, fenibrutinib um, so this is the uh, relapsing winning study. Uh, and it's always nice because um, um, Roche has, uh, in some of their studies, included this more um, comprehensive measure of disability progression or improvement, which is a nine-hole peg test, time 24 walk, or EDSS progression, which I think is a neat outcome, but picks up a lot more progressors. 
And then this is that really interesting head-to-head -head, uh, with Okralizumab versus Fenobrutinib, which I think we're all going to be interested to see. And Rimabrutinib, which is a, a new one for me to learn about, uh, uh, relapse-remitting study compared to teraflunamide. So very similar design. I just wanted to give you uh, uh, quickly some of the details, but not going into them in too, too much detail. Um, so as you notice, I avoided any discussion about covalent, non-covalent. It's really disappointing. Reversible, I mean, irreversible. I was hoping you could cover that. So please put those in the questions directly to Ben. Yeah. And, and, and since we're going to pick on me, I, I do want to ask you a question if I can, uh, one you're not expecting. And I'm curious even um, uh, from everyone in the audience, as you were describing the clinical trials that are going on now, there's one thing that has struck me about clinical trials in MS right now that's been concerning, and that's the age range. Um, if, you, if anyone was watching for the last remitting trials, almost all of them, the top uh, age was 55. Uh, and for the progressive trials, some were 60. Um, and in, in my practice, that's no longer representative of the population I'm serving. The, the percent of my patients who are above 55 or, or 60 is, is very high, and there's an eagerness to participate in trials. And I, I, I think personally, we may be making a mistake with exclusion. I, I am, however, biased. Uh, I was on service uh, a year and a half ago, and a medical student presented to me and said, this 55-year-old elderly gentleman, he did fail the rotation uh, <laughs> at that point. Appropriately so. Appropriately so. Um, but I, I will say, I think we're, we may be making an error. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I know why we do it historically, but I think in MS, this is, this is going to become an error because we're going to be prescribing these drugs for a lot of patients over the age of 60. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can certainly understand this statistician's point of view for excluding them because uh, they tend to be less active uh, and then you you may not get all the data you want but that's but we're treating them yeah. and so that's again where where safety long-term safety is really going to come to play because as uh, these elderly gentlemen uh, get our senile immune systems or immune senescence we're just at higher risk for opportunistic infections like uh, shingles and other nasty things so um the safety profile is going to be really important, but it would be nice. Um, just like there should be, all these drugs should be uh, available for for uh, uh, for pediatric indications. Um, the other end of the pediatric spectrum is the elderly over fifty five. <laughs> yeah, oh. middle age is fifteen years older than whatever you are right now. That's, that's a target. <laughs> okay, so um, I think we're going to shift gears now a little bit. Consensus guidelines for the use of MRI in multiple sclerosis were recently issued by Magnums, the CMSE, and NAMES. Using shared research findings, these groups have combined separate recommended protocols to make them united, simplified, and practical. The 2021 guidelines incorporate the 2017 McDonald Diagnostic Criteria. Major revisions include the adoption of standardized MRI protocols for diagnosis, evaluation of treatment, and prognosis. When available, 3D imaging techniques are preferred and the use of scanners with a field strength of at least 1.5 Tesla is recommended. Spinal cord imaging is used primarily in initial diagnostic investigation and other special circumstances. IV gadolinium contrast should be used judiciously and not repeatedly. Three to six months after the baseline MRI and start or change of disease-modifying therapy, obtain a second MRI without contrast. 
Special recommendations are included for pregnant, breastfeeding, and pediatric patients. New advanced MRI assessment techniques currently under investigation include measurements of slowly evolving and paramagnetic lesions and assessment of brain volume as a measure of no evidence of disease activity and atrophied lesion volume. MRI biomarkers measuring disease activity and progression include the central vein sign for diagnosis, leptomeningeal contrast enhancement to monitor inflammation, and myelin water imaging to assess myelin loss. Now, actually, guidelines, I've been working uh, with uh, many people over, well, since I joined CMSC over 20, 30 years ago, and it's been really fun to see the evolution, and, and particularly in towards attitudes where using MRI to monitor patients. I remember in the, in the uh, I think we started this around 2000, um, and uh, some colleagues were, well, I just use MRI to support the diagnosis and don't do it to monitor patients. And nowadays, it'd be a little unusual not to monitor patients. Back then, the, the data to support monitoring patients with MRI was, was pretty patchy, but now I think we have pretty good evidence. So over the years, again, with leadership from CMSC, joined with other groups uh, and uh, came up with the latest version, which are meant to be uh, hopefully clinically practical and useful. And there's several sessions during the, the rest of the conference on this, so I won't belabor it too much more except to say it's been really, really fun working on this over the years. Um, and you kind of heard about all that sort of stuff already. But what we wanted to touch on, um, and I guess I'll just keep going if that's all right, um, was uh, some of the uh, going beyond what we typically do in clinical practice. We're constantly, constantly, constantly looking for that golden biomarker that'll make our lives so much easier that we can crystal ball the future of that patient to know should we be ultra aggressive with treatment or just back off treatment and when can we back off treatment and we're still trying to find that uh, so you've heard all about serum neurofilament um, which is um, a nice simple uh, blood test to see uh, it's tends to be elevated in an untreated population and in a population that goes on treatment it tends to go quite down uh, so it it reflects some of the other uh, biomarkers of, of disease activity. Um, I'm still trying to get a sense how useful it will be on the individual patient level. That's always a challenge we have going from population level data, where we see these trends or improvements in something, and then trying to um, interpret that for the individual patient. So I think more work needs to be done on that. Pet microglial studies. Uh, PET uh, is mostly, my experience, been used either in cancer world or in Parkinson's world for research, uh, but it has been a lot of interest uh, trying to have a biomarker of microglia in the brain. And so PET uh, are these ligands that will attach to microglia, and we can see how many microglia are in the brain at any particular time. And in multiple sclerosis, there's more than in healthy controls. Uh, and so that's some of the evidence that supports there's a microglial role in progressive MS. And so uh, there are some exploratory studies looking at PET as a biomarker for treatment effect. And saw a, re a really lovely study of that uh, from Boston presented at American Academy with a, one of the anti-CD20 therapies. Brain atrophy uh, has been uh, around for a long time. Again, uh, seeing better and better brain atrophy prevention data with uh, the high-efficacy therapies. And then finally, the latest uh, that you may have heard about are slowly expanding lesions and paramagnetic rim lesions. So some MS patients will have T2 lesions that seem to just slowly expand over the time course of a year or two. 
Uh, not all MS patients will have that. It's, so it's a subset will have that. And, uh, and these have been labeled slowly expanding lesions. And the thought is these represent ongoing low-grade inflammation such as microglia activation. And if you could stop that process would you be impacting on the overall mechanisms of progressive MS? So could SELs be a biomarker of progressive MS? And, and therefore, if you impact that, are you impacting on progressive? So we still need that link, right? How, how well does it link to progressive MS? And likewise, the permanent rim lesions are uh, a marker of increased macrophages uh, at the edge of lesions that are probably uh, somehow equivalent to the concept of slowly expanding lesions. So these are endpoints uh, that have been explored in phase two, and I'm going to show you some of the data that are hoped to be um, further validated in phase three when you have a larger sample size and more data on, on progression or lack thereof. So this is from the Evo Brutinum study, uh, and uh, there is a, a pattern, a trend towards reduced uh, slowly expanding lesions at the at the uh, targeted dose of 75 twice a day. Uh, so d d you can just see those classic um, lines versus placebo. So that's uh, very encouraging. Again, we still want that clinical correlation to go with these things, of course. And then this is from Talabrutinum. Uh, looking at it a slightly different way, lower volume of slowly expanding lesions at the end of 18 months compared to uh, low-dose placebo arm. And, uh, and in that study, we also looked at uh, the pearls, the phase rim lesions, uh, and uh, there weren't any um, uh, new lesions showing up over the time course of this 18 months. And again, at this point, all patients are on the 60 milligram dose. So some... Intriguing biomarkers requiring further validation, which we'll get out of phase three trials, I hope. So I'm going to pass the torch back over to Ben because he's so much smarter and eloquent. Ben? Well, that goes without saying. So, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So um, we, we're going to have time for questions at the end, but to give you zoom out to the 30,000-foot view, there are summaries and, and conclusions here on the notion of these different cellular compartments, B-cells and microglia, relative to the path of physiology. And obviously what I would call very promising phase two data that justify the investments in moving drugs, uh, these drugs into phase three trials. But I, I do want to um, really focus on that third point. Um, so Tony did show the, the slide with a summary of these drugs of covalent, non-covalent, reversible, irreversible. Of the drugs in the phase three trials, fenobrutinib stat stands out as a reversible, non-covalent. The others are irreversible, covalent. But um, importantly, what, what we, we don't have enough time to go into is the selectivity of each of these drugs and how they bind the Bruton tyrosine kinase. And what we've learned from the oncology world is depending on how selective the inhibitor is for the target dictates a lot of the side effect profiles or risk. So as these drugs have off-target binding to other kinases in the same family, Patients may experience a wide array of different potential side effects. And depending on the selectivity and depending on covalent versus non-covalent, et cetera, there are big impacts on dosing. And not just the pharmacokinetic half-life of the drug in a person's body, but the immunologic half-life. Um, how do you have to dose these drugs to maintain a steady state of uh, inhibition of the kinase and alteration of B cell or microglial function. 
And so as we're going through the phase three data and as you're going to be hearing about these drugs from all sorts of sources moving forward and people will advertise themselves as being highly CNS penetrant or highly irreversible, those things may or may not be good. It, it doesn't, uh, uh, we don't assume that the better something binds, the better it is because there are a lot of other factors that go into judging the relative efficacy and safety of a drug. And so as you're looking through these trials, as the data come out, we really do need to treat each of these as an individual drug. Just because drug A, Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, works in a progressive patient does not mean drug B will. And so one of the things uh, we'll have to move away from is assuming that as a class, you can move from one drug to the other and expect the same outcomes. And I think it's fair to say, and, and Tony made the point with the, the last in purple, um, the MRI, especially in the trials, remains a critical point looking at outcomes. We use it in our clinic, obviously, for diagnosis and monitoring patients. And I, I made the comment uh, yesterday in a setting that some of the advanced imaging techniques that Tony talked about, we don't use clinically on a, a regular basis. So we're not following slowly expanding lesions or paramagnetic rim lesions in my clinical practice. I, I, if anyone here is, I'm going to be very, um, uh, very impressed. Um, that, but in the setting of the trials, it can be helpful for guiding us on where we should be looking next, hypothesis generation and, and how we should think about these drugs. And so we still follow the guidelines that, that Tony was involved in in terms of monitoring our patients, but we're looking forward to a day of having the advanced technologies on the front lines to really help make individualized treatment decisions. But I think this is an extraordinarily exciting new class of agents being brought to MS, um, but it's definitely gonna challenge us to think about therapeutics differently than we have in the past. So, great. Uh, we have a few minutes just to answer some of these or address some of these questions. Hope we can answer them. I'm gonna. There's two that are similar: uh, monotherapy or com or in combination. Uh, really, to that is with a different mechanism of actions. Could you see a potential trial with BTK used with another non-B cell drug used together to treat MS? Uh, we're assuming that uh, these things are costing pennies and not tens of thousands of dollars, right? Um, so, um, you know, we, we, we have completely failed as a field in medicine to do combination trials. We, we essentially have one, the COMBI-RX trial. It required uh, uh, the NIH to step in to, to run it um, and, uh, or to sponsor it, I should say. And um, we, for reasons that we can all talk about, um, are not good at doing combination uh, trials. And I think it's a lost opportunity for us and our patients to explore some of these uh, different aspects. I don't hold out a lot of hope that we're gonna get those trials done in meaningful, in large scale ways to, to answer big questions, but I do have hope that we could organize ourselves to do sequential trials. So just as interesting as the combination of two drugs it's interesting to consider what happens if you sequence drug B after drug A or vice versa. And particularly, there was a reference to B cell depleting therapies versus uh, BTK inhibition. It would be interesting to know if somebody was coming off of a B cell depleter, what would happen if they transitioned to a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor? So I would love to see combination uh, trials. I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. I just don't have a lot of hope we'll get there. We I remember we looked at it uh, combining, um, you know, Copaxone with interferon 
because we just had modestly effective drugs at that time. But then when the monoclonals and other therapies came along, we didn't seem to need it as much. So my three goals would be um, preventing, preventing inflammation, which all the drugs do, uh, preventing progression to be determined, and repair. It'd be nice if one drug fits all three, right? But um, that might be where we might need some combination to meet all three goals. And I think along those lines, one of the points of combination is also to remind everyone this is a syndrome, not a disease. There, there are multiple different types of MS patients you're seeing in clinic that define responder, non-responder to any one drug. So the theory, one of the theories at least behind combination is you cover a broader population if, uh, or get an additive benefit in some patients by layering on therapies. So it looks like the longest questions are for you, Ben. I'm going to give you a, a double barrel one. Okay. Um, is there any... Basic science, BTK effect on astrocytes or other cells of the innate immune system uh, than microglia or macrophages. And part two. Part two. My concern is uh, BTK inhibiting the beneficial effects of type 2 microglia. But yesterday, distinguished Dr. Greenberg, I added distinguished, made the case that, that data so far does not indicate this. Did I understand Dr. Greenberg correctly? Um, uh, so on the first question, so I do not know, I, I don't know the data for Bruton tyrosine kinase for altering astrocytic function. That's something I'll, I'll go and look up and happy to, to share. Um, there are other parts of the immune system that use Bruton tyrosine kinase, and there are other cells in the body that use Bruton tyrosine kinase, or I should actually say multiple members of the tech family of kinases, and that's where we get into off-target effects. But astrocytes, I don't know specifically as a, a use of it. In terms of the M1 and the M2 phenotypes, what the current data suggests is the sensors on the surface of the microglia, the toll-like receptors, and when you have FCR-mediated antibody binding, those are the two events that use Bruton's tyrosine kinase to signal a microglia to go down the path of an M1 phenotype. The surface signaling for M2 does not use Bruton's tyrosine kinase. So essentially what's happening is when you inhibit the kinase, you don't give the microglia an option to go down the M1 phenotype. So by default, the theory is you'll get the M2 phenotype. So it shouldn't, inhibiting the kinase shouldn't prevent that phenotype from forming. And that's what they see in uh, uh, in vitro models of microglia. Here's a, again, another fantastic question. Uh, opportunistic infections occurred in 4.2% 4, 4 in evobrutinib over two and a half years, and 4.2%, uh, I think this, four, this was 4.2% of patients on evobrutinib over 2.5 years experienced opportunistic infections. These types of infections are occurring at a higher rate than anti-CD20 class in controlled trials. Discuss hypothetical risk of transitioning from anti-CD20 to BTK. Hypothetically speaking, discuss risk of transitioning. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, we'll get a better estimate of the opportunistic infection rate from the phase three trial. Um, I, 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 um, I think I, I, one thing I was surprised that anti-CD20 did not have more opportunistic infections. I remember going into the phase two, phase three trials as an investigator, and, and we were all really paranoid, especially of PML, right? Uh, and that just didn't happen. So the the... the the, the safety profile is comparable to interferon, which was fantastic. I I would be surprised if we're going to have uh, a higher uh, opportunistic infection rate out of the phase three trial, which is a much larger and broader population. But um, 
Um, I guess in the sense I'm deferring that question until I get that data. So that's a maybe for me. Ben, do you have any further? Well, they did say hypothetically, so I'm not sure you can defer it. I think you have to hypothetically. Um, I, I agree. We won't know till the data. I will caution everyone. When we look at rates from phase two trials, it really only takes a couple patients' random events to lead to a 4% any, anything. And so we use it for signals. We use it to inform us, but it's very difficult to make conclusions. And um, remember, uh, it wasn't until after the phase three trials of natalizumab ended that we recognized PML as an association with, with natalizumab. And so some things come up after, uh, we get done with the trials and some things that are early on never come to fruition of, of being significant. So I, 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 I agree. We need to hold off if there is a risk, um, hypothetically, the transition from an anti-CD20 to a BTK inhibitor will be a fascinating question because if you start giving a BTK inhibitor when somebody's already B-cell depleted, uh, such that the B-cells are repopulating in the setting of BTK inhibition, I don't think we know exactly what to expect from an autoimmune perspective. The only literature we could go on is from the hematologic malignancies perspective, which isn't great because we're treating cancer there and not an autoimmune disease. Um, and so I, I think until we do that transition, it's very difficult to predict what patients would experience. Speaking of transition, um, you know, one area we've been challenged is what do we do with patients on something such as uh, natalizumab? We want to transition to another drug. The one potential advantage here might be that it's, it's, um, it, it's, uh, it kicks in pretty quickly from the talabrutinib data, we saw that within one to two months, you have full efficacy on suppressing enhancement. So that's an advantage, but also you can turn it off pretty quickly too, which if there is some emerging uh, late PML, you can um, potentially decrease the risk. So you have that high efficacy, potential high efficacy without the prolonged risk of immune, of immune modulation or suppression. So I think it might be a good transition drug. And uh, I want to say thank you to Peerview uh, and our sponsors and to the CMSC uh, for what so far has been a fantastic meeting. We hope everyone enjoys the rest of your day. Thank you all. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DTJ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.